The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? It's now a week since the Wagner Group revolted against the Kremlin. Though the dramatic uprising was quelled within 24 hours, and the group's leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, is now exiled to Belarus, the episode will have lasting impact on President Putin's authority. Among those closely watching the events unfold would have been the Chinese leadership, which sent out a statement of support for Putin, but only after it was clear that the revolt had been put down. So what will those in Zhonghai make of the Prigozhin uprising? And could something similar happen in China? To discuss this, I'm joined by James Palmer, a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and a long-time China hand. James, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here. So first of all, what did you make of the Chinese state's reaction to the revolt by Prigozhin? Because they did put out a statement of support to Putin, but it wasn't until after the revolt had been put down. Yeah, I think it was basically that they were confused about what was happening. I don't think that there was kind of a decision like, are we going to jump and support this, you know, sudden rebellion? I think the system was simply processing. And because, you know, the system is so top heavy, especially at the moment, and this is an issue of such sensitivity, it would have had to have been signed off on right from the top. And that always just takes longer. People have to be woken up, calls have to be made. I think that the final reaction was fairly predictable. They were always going to come down on offering support for Putin because not only has she been tied to Putin for many years, but they're also broadly pro-Russia in the war and certainly anti-NATO. And they very much framed this as either, in the most extreme version, a conspiracy by NATO or as the Western countries exaggerating a minor problem in Russia. Mm-hmm. And is that the same vibe you got from the state media reports as well, just the kind of wait and see attitude and then general support? Yeah, they didn't publish anything really until the official statement came out. And when they did do stories, they were very buried. It was all kind of, you know, like page six stuff. They really de-emphasised it. Instead, we got stories about how Xi Jinping had been corresponding with a Belgian zookeeper over pandas, which was, of course, the news that everybody was following that weekend. I thought it was interesting, the former editor of the Global Times, his reaction, Hu Xijing, who, on Twitter at least, said that this would be a hit to Putin's authority uh, and that he, you know, he thought it was good that Putin managed to get this quelled quickly, but that his authority took a hit. You know, was there a feeling that, you know, the commentariat also had to kind of feel their way around for what the right nationalistic line is on this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, he's also always been a little bit more envelope pushing than most commentators. He'll jump on stuff before there's a clear line, try to get kind of ahead of the story sometimes. And sometimes he's just kind of like speculating himself like a, a pundit would in any environment. He's one of the few figures in China, I think, who would have 
done very well in a westernized media environment and that he has the instincts to say something without knowing anything about it combined with a sort of uh, overweening confidence. What are you um, saying about media pundits, James? (laughs) Uh, You know, look, there's a world in which Husujin is like Matt Iglesias or a Fox News commentator, I'm just, just saying. It's uh, strong opinions, readily delivered. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, he used to be my boss. Like, I worked for him for, indirectly for several years, and he's a very interesting man just in terms of being genuinely really talented and shaping a media environment and putting together um, stories, not in terms of ethics or, or like, quality media, but he was a sort of proto-Chinese Beaverbrook or one of those, like, big media magnates of the of the 20s in a lot of ways and now he's basically retired um, but still running the kind of pundit operation mm. um, and so he's operating in a little bit more of a flexible space than guys working directly for state media mm. um, and you'll see this quite often with you know Chinese stories like there will be comments even from pro-party people that go against the line and then have to be walked back or deleted later uh, he got into trouble for doing some very aggressive anti-Pelosi tweets. Even when the Chinese line was very aggressive, they were too they were too aggressive. It was kind of, you know, suggesting that the PRC might shoot down the plane and so on. Mm. And when you say he was your boss, this was when you were working for Chinese state media um, years ago now, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I didn't know him well, but he would come into the office, hang out, give very loud talks in Chinese, um, a lot of which was sort of... Um, uh, the the equivalent of like, of of like those nineteen eighties comedy specials where it's like black guys walk like this but white guys walk like this, um, except with oh, like <laughs> Westerners and Chinese or Chinese and Koreans. Um, oh dear. Which I mean, you know, look compared to the average internal company speech, much you know he he was a, he, he was a fairly charismatic and funny speaker, just also like a fifty something guy with a very particular view of the world. That might be quite a good idea for a sitcom, like The Office, putting a state oh, media. Oh yeah, no, we we off. we had a whole <laughs> series of episodes drawn up for that. Oh, um, based on real events. Yeah, me and um, Robert Foyle Hamwick was one of the other editors, um, including. I think that the 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 pilot episode was going to be an investigation after a paper factory was dis- accidentally described as being the largest in China and the second largest in the world, which was something that really happened. It caused a like weeks-long investigation. People were fined because the largest paper factory in the world is in Taiwan. And so the statement had accidentally implied that Taiwan was not a part of China because, of course, some reporter had oh, pulled, this is amazing. pulled the statement off like Wikipedia or something. Okay, James, I have to have you back on to talk about what what this what this. Okay, we've got a little like, there, Very much the, digress the right whole, now. <laughs> you know, my tales, my my tales of state media intrigue are long and mostly kind of brilliant. I, I am mindful that we 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 are digressing <laughs> right now. So just going going back to um, Prigozhin then, because something else that caused some commentary was the fact that the Russian deputy foreign minister just happened to be in Beijing on Sunday. You know, the day after the coup was put down. Do we know anything about whether or not that visit was always going to happen? Because it would have been very interesting if it was an ad hoc visit to reassure Beijing within about 24 hours. But but it was always meant to happen. I, I'm not 100%, but I think it was a planned visit. Because, of course, they're putting a lot of diplomatic effort into keeping China on side anyway. And, mm. you know, this is one of the fundamental dynamics of the war, is that China started off in many ways more enthusiastic about it. 
because they were probably informed about it by uh, the, the upcoming invasion, even though they've, they've now claimed that they weren't. And while they've kept up a very strong pro-Russian rhetorical line, uh, mostly because of anti-Western feeling, you can kind of see in their actions this real doubt about why Russia has done so badly and um, how much they should commit. So despite all the, the censorship of pro-Ukrainian materials, the pro-Russian broadcast on TV, they haven't cut Moscow a lot of slack in even stuff like energy deals, for instance. They've mm. um, they've been quite careful. They've been very careful about not supplying direct military material, um, although some companies have done sort of indirect stuff. They've mostly kept to financial sanctions. I, and so Russia is having to put a lot of effort, I think, into just keeping convincing the Chinese that, that of the Russian line and possibly offering them stuff in the, the longer term. So we've seen pretty regular diplomatic meets, um, military to military stuff, some of it through the uh, Shanghai Corporation Organization, which does fairly regular military exercises, mostly designed at practicing putting down revolts in people's countries, members' countries. And so I think that, that was just part of it. So they'll be definitely ramping that up in the aftermath of this, though I think we'll see a lot of kind of like Russian diplomatic efforts probably selling the idea that this was like a CIA plot because that's always like an easy line to get the Chinese to buy. And do you think that the Chinese would buy that or are there worried people now in John Ahe thinking we've put a lot of eggs in a Putin basket? Recognise what you're saying about how the Chinese are driving a hard bargain still for their friendship, but nevertheless has not exactly condemned the war and is seen widely by the world as being, you know, two apologists for what's going on in, in Ukraine right now. So do you think they're rethinking of their support for Russia? So I think it's very difficult because... Russia and China are so close, and Xi and Putin ha are publicly very close. There's a real risk that arguing against China's closeness to Russia at this point, China's effective support for the invasion, would get you seen as being anti-Xi, or would be would be seen as like a coded attack on Xi, especially in the aftermath of last mm. year, where Xi's position, although it remains formally very strong, was significantly weakened in terms of perceptions of competence. You know, like there's basically, basically she has mostly been a bad leader, like not in terms of what the party values, which is total control, but in terms of the economy, in terms of the handling of zero COVID, in terms of international relations, like China has just catastrophic popularity numbers uh, worldwide now, and especially among its neighbours. They've crashed to levels far, far worse than 10 years ago. Um, and so I think it's very risky to to really go after kind of the the effective alliance or, or semi alliance because it would be seen as like undermining Xi. Now, if Xi signals that there's space for it, um, if he through comments or through uh, maybe making a big deal of another call with Zelensky or something like that, then you could see people taking advantage of that space. But I think until then, it's too risky. Basically, we saw saw some dissent in the very early days of the war. There was a big essay um, that got translated and published by a state think tank connected guy. Um, but that was all taken offline. People were slapped down or told off internally very fast. So I think lots of people are going to be thinking this. Lots of people are going to be thinking, like, why are we, why are we backing this war? But they're not going to be saying it. 
And then lots of them will just straightforwardly buy into the kind of like the CIA runs everything. Um, Zelensky is a US puppet line. That's I heard people sincerely uh, repeat those lines, officials, military people, state media people, many times about previous events, particularly the Arab Spring and the Iranian protests. Uh, there's, it's, there's a very strong conspiracy tradition within China. You know, even back in 76, there were worries that somehow foreign agents had infiltrated Beijing during the Tiananmen protests that year. There's a whole, you know, communist tradition of paranoia about foreign intrusion that is still really a live force today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we saw that kind of similar kind of rhetoric in Hong Kong in 2019, even in the white paper protest last year. But I guess the difference between Prigozhin's revolt and what these events are is that those latter events are more mass protests, whereas this one seems to have been a paramilitary force, which I wanted to ask you more about, James, in, in shortly. But before I do, what about Xi Jinping himself then? Because we know so little about what he believes in and what he values, what his temperament is like. But one would think that he values strong men. One would think that he values strong characters, people who have a handle on the situation. And if anything, the weekend's events show that Putin didn't have a handle on things. So could there be a... I mean, presumably there's a personal loss of face there. Not that Xi Jinping's personal relationship with Putin ever mattered that much for China's national position on the war. But it does show to one strongman leader that another strongman leader isn't as strong as he thought he was. Yeah, I mean, my view with Xi has always been that he's quite a boring person who just picks up on kind of the mainstays of nationalist thinking mixed with, you know, he occasionally like blesses an ultra-nationalist blogger or or two and then they get promoted for like six months and then they get forgotten. (laughs) And I would say that he picked up on Chinese society's general strongman admiration of Putin. Like that was all over Mm. Chinese media in the 2010s in particular. There was a lot of seeing Putin as somebody who was reclaiming national territory through the invasion of Crimea, who had stood up to the West, um, his approval rate in polling, which is always, a you know, pretty unreliable in autocratic states, but still, it was over 90% um, consistently throughout the, uh, like, mid-2010s at least. Um, so I think she probably believed that Putin, as a lot of people believed, was this, like, Machiavellian strongman who, you know, was in control of everything, and we've seen that very brutally exposed. Um, I don't think that the personal connection, as such as it is, will bring any kind of like fondness or, no. you know, like by Putin credit. If anything, I think there's, there's a set, probably a sense of disappointment. But all of this, of course, is very speculative because we get almost nothing mm. out of the upper echelons of the CCP, especially when it comes to personal opinions. If you allow me one more speculative question, which is just that, do you think that people in John Ahai are now having a conversation of who comes after Putin? Are there successors that they should be kind of making links with or getting <laughs> getting intel on? So again, I would be, I think we may even be at a point of paranoia inside the Chinese system where you can't have those discussions because it raises the question of who is Xi's successor. Right. Because Xi has not chosen a successor, unlike every previous Chinese leader after since Mao, he has broken the old succession system and stayed in power. And so while you might be able to have those conversations, you know, on on long walks in the hills with somebody you trust, you're probably not having them in any mm. kind of recordable context, because there, there really would be the, the fear, I think, that you could, that, like, are they actually talking about some 
something else. Because one of the things we see in, in communist states when they go, or autocratic states in general, but particularly communist ones, when they go full paranoia is they start to work in this kind of language of symbolism and illusion yeah. um, and so on. And allegories become very important, yes. which is what we saw in the Cultural Revolution, particularly quite a lot when people were yeah. purged for putting on plays or writing books that were seen as allegories to current affairs. Uh, Hyrule removed from office. Like, you know, I don't think it's going to be one of those things where people start talking about like some sixth century general who got removed and, and the, uh, in they, elaborate, you know, the, everybody starts <laughs> making like UFA um, analogies or something. Um, <laughs> Although, James, did you see this? On social media, not in the, from officialdom, on social media, people using the word Qingjuinte, which is this idea of eliminating the emperor's allies and cronies, which has been a, a, an excuse for coups throughout. I yeah. missed that one. So, that's it, very, obviously, so, that's very funny. so netizens have been using that to describe Prigozhin's revolt because, just to explain for listeners, this is um, the phrase that courtiers have used for centuries to justify their coups against uh, competitors in the court that they thought had the ear of the emperor a bit too much. Anyway, people were making that kind of imperial comparison, which is quite interesting. I, I did see somebody making the joke about Prigozhin realizing that he was late. For a meeting with Putin and deciding to revolt instead, which is a, a reference, you know, to the uh, revolt against the original like Qin uh, dynasty, where uh, somewhat mythologically two army officers were on their way home and were like, oh, what, "We're going to be late for this for this meeting," and like, "What's the punishment for being late? Execution. What's the punishment for revolt? Execution." So you know, might as well go with the revolt. <laughs> Very good. And James, can I ask as well, I mean, that the, the, the modern China so often takes um, lessons from Russia or the Soviet Union. You yourself have written about this when it comes to the fall of the Soviet Union, for example, in the 90s in China, they were very much learning lessons from that. I'm sure they're learning lessons from the war in Ukraine about not least about the uh, People's Liberation Army. So does this episode tell China anything about its own internal security or are the parallels too limited there? Because after all, China doesn't have a mercenary group to the comparison of the Wagner group. I think it just reinforces their existing beliefs about military control because China takes very extensive efforts to make sure that something like this can't happen. They rotate generals between commands, for instance, to prevent them from building up any kind of like strong support or any kind of like loyal like direct loyalty from their men they maintain the dual control system inherited from the Soviet Union whereby you have a, a mil effectively a military commander and a political commissar at most levels um, acting as a parallel command structure and the commissar is also there to watch the the commander so they've always been very concerned with keeping the military on side and making sure that nobody becomes too powerful. Now, you have nevertheless had people um, like Marshall Ye in the 1970s who became power actors in their own right, um, who helped eliminate the Gang of Four. There's an elaborate conspiracy theory around the 1979 invasion of Vietnam, for instance, that uh, Deng Xiaoping allowed it to fail because in order to discredit the, the generals, I don't think that's at all yeah, true. Right. I think it failed because Deng wanted to prove his own military credentials and just wasn't very good. But, you know, we, you always get these sort of, like, elaborate stories uh, around the power struggles. Uh, and she, right at the beginning of his rule, one of the first things he did was purge the hell out of the army, including going after mm. retired generals. One guy was, like, dragged from his hospital bed where he was dying of cancer and arrested, for instance. Or, or on corruption charges. 
on corruption charges. Now, that was mostly not about the fear that the army was going to rebel against the party or even against Xi. It was about the perception that the PLA had built up its own vast economic empire of business controls um, and ownership that it was supposed to have given up but hadn't. So we've seen a real attempt to go after that, an attempt to reduce corruption. The corruption, of course, is returning as it always does because there's nothing in place to prevent it. To really prevent it returning, there's just an eternal cycle of you know crackdown and then it there and return. But the why there was really much more about perception and kind of and also the the sort of internal gangsterism whereby like the PLA was taking too much of the pie and other people wanted a share in, mm. in PLA enterprises. It had gotten to quite ridiculous levels. Um they ran uh, I knew somebody, for instance, who was inducted into the PLA and promoted to major general, having previously been a businessman, because they needed a guy to run a condom factory that they owned. Uh, and that kind of thing was quite common. Like you had positions were being handed out all over the place for basically business reasons. But they've always kept things very tightly controlled. Even the paramilitary groups, like the People's Armed Police, they... They don't. I don't think the PAP has a political commissar system. Um, I may be wrong on that, but they are tightly politically monitored, and there are all kinds of rules. They actually just put out a, a new set of rules um, last week on military leaders' social life that basically puts harsh limits on what they can say in any private capacity. They can't associate with foreigners or businessmen or all the all these kind of things. They're very tightly watched. Um, even the ordinary soldiers were not allowed phones until like three years ago, I think. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, not even personal phones. Not even personal phones, no. But a lot of Chinese military spending actually has been um, basically trying to improve conditions of life for ordinary soldiers because they went from being a real prestige group in the Maoist era, like going into the army was one of the ways you could escape from being born into a peasant life, to quite low, like low status during the 90s and 2000s. So we've seen recruitment has been very limited to poor areas, for instance. And so a lot of the, a lot of the money they put in in the last sort of 10 years or so has been stuff like getting the rats out of the barracks and like getting them like half decent food and, you know, transporting them on like reasonably nice trains instead of sticking like 30 of them in the back of a, a truck, uh, which you used to uh, used to see quite a bit um, in the 2000s. Um, James, I'm going to need you to elaborate on this idea of the PLA having a business empire, because I think that was an idea that's so foreign to listeners, probably. So the corruption wasn't meant to happen, but the system had been set up in a way at a certain point that business interests were able to develop. So explain how that came about. How is it that a military can have business empires? So basically, during the Cultural Revolution, by 6970, um, the PLA was being used to put down a lot of the excesses of the revolution, and um, excesses being, in this case, mass murder, um, but also chaos. So that gave them a base to essentially take over very large swathes of the economy. They were, they were doing the harvest in a lot of areas, for instance. They were running factories. When the reform and opening started in the 80s then, PLA officers were among the most well-positioned people to take advantage of that new flexibility. And the PLA got very heavily into real estate and the entertainment sector in particular. They also took advantage of controlling the borders. So, so they had the 
semi-licit business empire. So, for instance, you know the layout of Beijing, like, reasonably well, right? Like, central central Beijing. Not from Beijing, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Okay, so essentially, Beijing CBD, you have an area from Wulaoko, which is the big foreigner-orientated, um, but also, like, Chinese-rich entertainment bar sector, um, all the way down to uh, Gongti Stadium, Workers' Stadium. So you've got a, what's that? It's like a, like a solid mile or two. That's all, uh, and this is all like really prime real estate. I'm, I'm trying to think of a London example, but I'm from Manchester. So, you know, um, pick, <laughs> it's, uh, but I, I, I don't know, like, but it's, it's like owning, I don't know, like Fifth Avenue. Yeah, it's, uh, um, right, it's, right. A, it's a huge commercial area. That real estate is all owned and controlled or was last time I checked, which was about 2018, by the PLA. That is actually good for the businesses there because it means if you're running a bar, um, so there were a lot of like big bars, foreign restaurants, etc. in that, that neighborhood, including Destination, which was the big Beijing gay club, you only had to bribe one person. You only had to bribe the <laughs> PLA representative because the PLA could act as a, essentially a shield against all the other Beijing authorities. Um, so whereas in, in most situations, if you run a bar, you might have to be bribing like the the water inspection guy and the police and the guy specially commissioned by the city to investigate nightlife and the workers' regulations guy. And it's a, uh, you essentially combined all of these into one flat fee, very <laughs> popular. So that, so it was actually one of the reasons why uh, all that, that industry congregated there. But then, so they had the semi-licit stuff like real estate and so on. Then they also ran a lot of brothels. Those were very commonly on like the very high-end brothels were on PLA compounds or PLA territory because protection from the police. Down south, they still run, I think, effectively gambling and gambling centres on the border. They were involved in the arms trade to Myanmar, the drug trade with North Korea. So all kinds of fingers and all kinds of grubby little pies. One of my favourite scams was that, and I think they actually did successfully crack down on this one, in about 2014, for um, driving in China between cities is really expensive because there's a whole highway toll system, and most of the the new roads were funded by tolls, but they were but the tolls were only supposed to last for ten years. But governments or the private contractors who had bought the rights to the tolls kept enforcing the tolls anyway after the the ten year period had passed. So the PLA had a really nice business selling military license plates to truckers in particular, because military license plates meant you didn't have to pay highway tolls. So it was cheaper to pay like $5,000, $6,000 to get a, a military license plate than, than to pay the sort of ten grand in tolls you were going to accumulate for the year. Who would buy these? Just your normal... So for the most part, like sometimes like rich dudes with BMWs, but more commonly, (laughs) more commonly truckers. Uh, The Chinese trucking industry is, operates on like razor thin margins. Uh, The average, average size of a trucking firm is one and a half people. So this leads to a cycle of overloading trucks and accidents and all kinds of problems. But one of the ways around paying the extortionate tolls was just like paying the PLA instead. 
And so, so you know, this, this is a, the picture you're painting is one of rife corruption. But I guess my confusion is why the PLA was able to do all of this stuff. Was it just because it was in such a good position after the Cultural Revolution? Or did the political leaders think we've got to give those soldiers a, a, a slice of the pie as well? I think it was mostly that everybody was super corrupt. Everybody was making money. And the army... I'm not certain on this, but I would guess that basically the political commissars were also in on this. And so you effectively had a system in which nobody wanted to rock the boat. Now, by the late 2000s, this was becoming a really visible problem. So you had quite nationalistic commentators like uh, uh, Li Yuan making references to the Beiyang Navy, which was the navy that failed to fight the Japanese and failed because they were super corrupt. So there were quite open discussions about how bad the problem of corruption had gotten by the 2000s. Those discussions have now ended because the problem is supposed to have been fixed by the purges. But I think that one of the underlying factors in China's general, actually quite high level of military cautiousness is because they really don't know what the supply situation might be in a lot of cases because the level of corruption has been so high. Mm. And circling back to Russia, I think they'll have doubled down on that lesson after seeing how badly corruption affected the Russian invasion because there are real questions like how much of the ammunition in this store is actually there and how much of it has been flogged off like to, yeah. to Miami's uh, armed groups, um, for instance. And you can see that even, you know, in, in a much more open and democratic society over the border in Taiwan, Taiwan also had a pretty big military corruption problem. Um, they're mostly not expressly for profit, but mostly a kind of combination of bureaucracy and laziness that actually resulted in the suicide of an officer two years ago because he was being asked to sign off on readiness reports that were untrue. And you can see how, because they investigated that afterwards, like, you can see how badly this sort of um, Mm. system of cover-ups affects any army. Mm. And I think they'll really be looking at Russia and thinking two things. A, we were right to not develop any kind of privatised system or even allow generals space. B, we really should try and find out what's happening with our own own (laughs) army, but with our own supply system. Um, Now, the problem is that they're at the moment, having to do a lot of trying to find out what's happening in their own country. You know, they just finished big investigations into local debt levels, for instance, because local governments have been hiding a ton of debt from the central government. And they sent out investigation teams to try and uncover that. So the military is probably relatively far down on that list because it's mm. tricky to handle, it's and it's it's less immediate a problem than the slowing economy. But I think it probably is on that list, nevertheless. Mm. But fundamentally, the upshot is that China would not be worrying about a Prigozhin-style revolt or anything like that, because no other actor has that much power. They just don't, there's there's not even any general in the regular army who has that kind of power. Their private security sector. Okay, so they've got a ton of private security contractors within China, who are the guys who supply like the the security guards for construction sites, a lot of whom are either basically like rural guys who don't have any other option or are ex-army themselves. Like Mm. there's a whole kind of army, like PLA to private security pipeline, which is normal. You have that in every, every country, to be honest. That's a whole bunch of small companies, basically. Like it's very, it's a very fragmented sector. 
they're mostly tied into like real estate and real estate enforcement, everything from guarding equipment to beating up pensioners to get them to move. So there's really no worry there in terms of there's no no coherent force. And their overseas security is very weak. Uh, and we saw in the 2010s when the Belt and Road Initiative was getting going, so actually a lot of Chinese complaints about that, that there wasn't enough security for over for firms that were doing business in risky mm-hmm. areas of the world. And, you know, Chinese citizens have been kidnapped in Pakistan and factories have been attacked in Central African Republic and the, the DRC. They only have, a, I think, a, like just over 3,000 people in that sector, um, which given the scale of business is, is very, very low. I mean, the U.S. sector is like multiples of that size. And they actually bought in uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, to try and run one of the big Chinese firms, Frontier, Frontier Services. But he doesn't seem to have really gotten anywhere dramatic. They're definitely trying to improve the sector, though. But he, that will be, I think, mostly in terms of risk consultancy, local relations, and contracting on local guards rather than having any kind of like big Chinese sort of armed force that deploys overseas in the way that Wagner did. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, I think, you know, nobody really understands what happened in the last weekend. Well, I'm sure some people do, but (laughs) many people are confused. And presumably that is also the position in Beijing as well, just uh, waiting and seeing what comes next. I think that the Chinese have perhaps been overestimating how much they understand Russia because they think that the Russian system operates like the Chinese system. Um, Mm. But the Russian system is very different from the Chinese system at this point. You know, they share similar roots, but Russia had the extremely messy 1990s that really reshaped like like Russian business and elite culture in mostly terrible ways. And so something like this, which I've seen convincingly interpreted as like a kind of gangster confrontation coming out of like 1990s Russian culture just doesn't make mm. sense in the same way to the Chinese. It's not that the Chinese don't have organized crime. In fact, one of my all-time favorite academic studies is uh, uh, Verisi's Mafias on the Move, where he shows that Hong Kong organized crime syndicates were unable to move into the mainland because the Chinese Communist Party already fulfilled all the roles that organized crime takes. <laughs> but... It's much more bureaucratic. The whole system is much less gangster dependent. It's it's not even gangster adjacent in the same way that the, the Russian system is. There are normally ties between organized crime and local city leaders, as we saw with actually with Bo Shilai, both when he cleared out Chongqing and then when it turned out that he had just mm. established his own kind of mafia type systems in control. But it's it's nowhere near the level of personalised violence, masculinity and thuggery of Russia. Well, it strikes me that the party is, plays a massively important role in this, right? You know, we've got over 90 million members of this huge institution that was here before Xi Jinping will be here after Xi Jinping, most likely. Whereas Putin is really kind of flying by the seat of his pants here. And if other mafia bosses, regional mafia bosses try to fight him for the crown, then he doesn't have an institutional backing there. Yeah, there's no there's no structure in the same way. You know, you have United Russia, his party, but that's only one pillar of a very big... Um, and messy system of control that's very securocrat dependent. And, you know, the overall structure of the party really matters and the formalism of the party really matters in China. 
James Palmer, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of Perspectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.